0: Did you know that right now there's a group of people running the business of their dreams? They are respected leaders in their field, working with clients they love and serving them profitably. Now, are they famous? Depends on who you ask. They're not signing autographs at the grocery store or taking selfies every five minutes. They're not trying to be everywhere on social media, yet when they show up at trade events and conferences, they are recognized and sought after. They're the ones everyone else looks up to. They're the next generation of thought leaders in their space. So what's their secret? Well, they've become famously influential to the right people, and so can you. Today, we'll dig into the story of one of these leaders and deconstruct how they became micro-famous. You won't just come away inspired, you'll come away with a new strategy and a new way of thinking. So while your competition is scattered, chaotic, and chasing every shiny object, you can move forward with confidence and clarity. I'm your host, Matt Johnson, agency founder and author of Micro-Famous, and if you're ready to become famously influential to the right people, let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. This is Micro Famous Conversations. I've got an awesome repeat guest. You may remember Peter Winnick from a couple of his former appearances. And if you do not, you should uh, listen to them. But listen to this one first, because this is a standalone episode. You do not have to have listened to his other episodes, because I'm going to tell you who Peter is. He is an agency owner. He works with a lot of thought leaders who then speak and consult and sell and train in the larger company world, the enterprise market. And so, we run in uh, similar and adjacent circles, but he really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the big company environment. You know, where's their sponsorship money going? And, you know, what are they doing for events right now when they can't do live events and all this stuff? And so, I asked Peter the question, how do you sell if you've been used to selling from the back of the room after you speak you work for a company, or you have a company, and you've been the person that goes and speaks, and then you send people to one of your lackeys at the at the back of the room, uh, running a booth, and you say like, "Hey, if you if you're interested in our company." go check it out. You know, we're at the back of the room, go, go track us down and we'll be happy to help you with questions. So if you're used to selling in that environment where you have number one, a captive audience, and number two, you have the ability to create energy and and transfer and enthusiasm and build up all this positive emotion, what happens when you don't have that ability anymore to sell in that environment? You know, what happens if you are someone that typically shows up at events and you're able to capitalize on that atmosphere of energy and enthusiasm to make all your networking connections and, and build relationships that eventually leads to sales you know what happens when we just don't have that that emotional environment anymore well peter's going to give you the answer so uh, i want to jump in quickly uh, with him you can check out peter thoughtleadership leverage.com or you can check out his podcast leveraging thought leadership that's the best way to track him down so without further ado here's peter winning peter officially welcome back i'm back (laughs) <laughs> we, as we record this, we are recording uh, back back to back episodes, so that's why Peter and I are chuckling. Uh, we just came off of recording an amazing episode on uh, on where the money is at and what to do if you are a thought leader and you're working with things like associations and event planners, and they've got no other options. So now's the time to experiment. We gave out some really great. Peter, you had some amazing ideas on that on that episode, so people should go check well, out your you. your last episode. Um, what I want to talk about on this one is uh, I. The psychology of selling at events, you believe were like the the kind of emotional, get them into the event, get them to the back of the room, get them signed up, kind of that hard that hard selling from stage thing was already waning pre-COVID and now you put the nail oh, yeah. on the head. That, that so, was really interesting. Caught me off guard. Why do you say that?
1: Well, first, let me just give you the disclaimer. So, my world is B2B, right? right. So, so, where we work with our clients, our clients have great content, great thought leadership that we're working really hard to get it embedded into large organizations because Mm -hmm. it actually has a real outcome and a real benefit. The B2C world, we don't mess with, but we're we're fairly fluent in it. So Mm -hmm. what you're talking about is the old school event business. Mm -hmm. And even pre-COVID, the trend lines on that have been awful, where it's harder and harder and harder to get people to go somewhere. I mean, people don't leave the house. I mean, again, Pre-COVID, we still had Netflix. Right. So back in the day, if you look at, say, a John Maxwell or something, um, it's a really interesting business model. When when John moved from the pulpit to sort of the leadership pulpit, if you will, what he knew is the church business, right? And he knew that churches, guess what? They get used a lot on Sundays, and many other days of the week, there's capacity. So that was actually started as a satellite business, right? Mm-hmm. So you can go to all these churches and say – here's 200 bucks. Can we have a room, you know, could we have some space here or hundred bucks or whatever for 400 people? So it starts the technology with satellite to get people in the room. Hmm. Be that as it may, even if you were in the same room as whoever that back of the room salesperson was um, the business model where number one, get somebody in a room and X percent of those people will buy the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that is clearly an emotional and and biophysical response. I mean, if you look at Tony Robbins as the master of, okay, there's a reason you're on your feet jumping up and down you're not being fed a lot. Oh, you get a little lightheaded when that happens. (laughs) Oh, you get get a little more loose with the Amex when that happens, Uh right? uh Um, My perspective is that those businesses were struggling really, really uh, a lot for the last seven or eight or 10 years because you can get all that stuff online. It's cheaper, it's cheaper to run that, it's it's, uh, easier but you don't get to run off of the emotional piece.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Like this is, this is where I would say, and, and my thinking might evolve on this over time, but I, I was never on board with the Tony Robbins mentality of you make your best strategic decisions when you're at peak emotional state. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like that's that, but, but you hit the nail on the head. It works great for sales. Right? If you, if you make people believe that, it's amazing for sales. But we don't run our businesses in peak emotional state. We run it at equilibrium. So, to me, the best strategic decisions are made when you're at equilibrium. You're not too high, you're not too low. Your self image is accurate and not inflated yeah, and or it's, underinflated. And
1: it's changed. I mean, I could tell you, I remember in 2006 or 2007. Uh, I was invited by Todd Duncan to see him speak at a uh, oh, big yeah. casino on, on the East Coast. And, and in those days, Todd was the guy for mortgage brokers. That was yep. his business, which in 2005, 2006 was a great business to be. And he got paid as whatever, 40 grand for the front of the stage. And I literally saw them write a half a million dollars worth of business in, in two hours back of the stage. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking after, like a year after, like, okay, is it really his work that's making mortgage brokers <laughs> incredibly successful at a time when they're doing dummy loans and you can get your dog a second and third mortgage? Right. Not so much, right? Um, but there was this, this um, emotional frenzy combined with the peer pressure of, "Ooh, Matt's the number one mortgage broker that I yes. know in in, in uh, San Diego and I'm in Cleveland. I just saw him run up there and buy something. So, damn, I better, they're going to run out quick because they, yeah. they also put these fake... Uh, you know, click, 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 the infomercial time's running out. There's only eight widgets left. Like, get, right. you know, run to the, you know, literally see people running to the back. Yes. Yeah. I, just, I just don't think that that's aligned with the world that we live in today. Now,
0: yeah.
1: are there places where make people make impulse buy at peak emotional state? Yes, it's called in front of their laptops, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but it's harder to find them one at a time than say, Ooh, we got, we got, you know. Well, yeah, it's harder,
0: it's harder to get the dollar amounts that you want. So I think yeah. that's, I was talking with the client about this the other day. And, uh, yeah, just is there a trend away from the super high dollar in-person emotional buys to where you have to package up relatively the same type of thing but put it into lower lower dollar amounts so that it becomes an impulse buy in front of the laptop because that's a different amount of money.
1: Well, and you know, part of, you know, even like the Tony Robbins, the experience. Hawaii is better than Hoboken. as a destination. It just is, right? Yeah. So, there is something aspirational when you start to get into some of those programs and say, ooh, I did this now and the next year I'll do this and maybe maybe in five years from my 40th, you know, whatever, I'll do the Hawaii thing. Like, mm-hmm. that is a, a, you know, a bucket list destination versus okay. the living room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I can. yeah, I can see, uh, yes there there is a there's an aspirational element to it, and we can piggyback off of that by looking for ways that we can because we are talking about in our last episode um, smaller group meetings so if you feel like you can 't do live events, maybe you start structuring into your coaching live mastermind events where you might not have done those before It may have always been like a one to one coaching relationship, and then that relationship was sold at the back of the room maybe now it's your introducing a community aspect to the very thing you're selling because they're not getting that from the events. Yep.
1: Well, I think the other piece is given that you don't have the emotions to fiddle with as much, Mm -hmm. you really, really need to be thoughtful about outcomes. What what is the outcome? Right. Because when I'm buying something in a a frenzied state, there's buyer's remorse later, but it's Mm -hmm. too late. Right. And I think if you could be, you know, we're living in a world right now, forget COVID for a moment, if you would, um, it's recessionary, if not worse. What does that mean? Dollars are scarce. What does that mean? Doesn't mean I'm not spending money, but I'm going to be a little bit more thoughtful on investing that money. And if, if you're talking to me in the language of return on investment, of impact, how it drives my business, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, I'm feeling better about that. I'm mm-hmm. feeling like this isn't some fluffy thing that I, you know, is a luxury or whatever, whatever. And I think a lot of people don't know how to convert because it's almost a, a language conversion process at some level, the outcomes of what they do, the benefits of what they do from an yeah. ROI perspective. So if I were to say to you, Matt, hey, I have this program and by working with me and spending a dollar, nine out of 10 of my clients generate $3.2, that's going to get you to raise your eyebrows and go, really, tell me more mm-hmm. versus it's just going to make you feel good or you're pumped up or you're, you know, whatever, your, your heart rate's up or whatever.
0: I uh, know. One of, one of my clients is in the aerospace industry and he said, look, there's nobody's hiring. But they will hire two types of people, even when they claim they're not hiring, which is, can you make me money and can you save me money? Right. And uh, and exactly. that is the problem because there's a lot of thought leaders there in things like customer experience design, for example, and mindful communication, teamwork, and leadership in the workplace and culture and all this stuff. And, yeah, it's like it's hard for them because they're just not used to it. They're not putting – they're not used to putting their outcomes into – a sales measure.
1: So let me me dovetail off of that. So there's nice to have and must to have, right? Mm -hmm. So I was talking to someone the other day and um, they're hiring people and they're onboarding people. And it was the head of HR at a company and said, wow, we've never thought through that whole experience in a non-physical way. So hiring was usually their screen, you know, you, you break it down to the elements here's the screening. And then you come in for the interview, you make that. And then once I onboard you that first week here, I'm going to make that a special experience, right? I'm going to acclimate you to the team. And on Tuesday, Sally's going to take you to lunch. And on Wednesday, you're going to sit down with the boss. Okay. I have to rethink that whole experience because if, if onboarding is now, all right, Matt, log in, here's your VPN and uh, (laughs) welcome to the team old night, you know, when somebody's Uh going to bleep you on Slack. So there is an opportunity to create onboarding in a, in a, for remote workplaces. There's an opportunity opportunity to create content around how do you how do you maintain the integrity of the culture of your organization when we're no longer under the same roof you know mm-hmm. there's an opportunity to create content now on you know all safety content used to be warehouse and factory stuff oh 72 days without an accident there's a whole huge space now what we're calling white collar safety because now yeah. you know we've all been around that guy or gal that came to came to the office when they shouldn't have and they were sneezing away in the flu could you imagine the reaction you'd get today like it used to be, listen. I'm not feeling great. And I probably should stayed home. I'm imagining the
0: the commercials, the Terry, the office linebacker, where he just fly through the yeah. office and just tackle <laughs> right, right. people. Yeah, that's the, that's what I envision would happen. Right. Yeah. It's a the elevator wall. door
1: opens. There's no elevator, and they go yeah. in the sneeze shaft or something like that. <laughs> you no, know, But things that were, I don't say that was ever acceptable, but it wasn't. Right. It wasn't like going not to work with no clothes. It was like, yeah. whoa. So now, what is? How do you teach people that they have a responsibility that if you're not feeling well. You're not coming to work, and by the way, you have to have systems and processes to support that, right? So, yep. if there's an incentive that says I don't get paid to stay home, geez, I'm gonna I'm gonna sweat it out, you know, and then that that's not cool. And I and I think we have to rethink Man, that whole. What is the responsibility I have to you as my coworker? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to put you in. And how do I know that you're not taking care of an elderly parent? Am I, do I want to put your mom at risk? Geez, that's mm-hmm. like whoa. I know Um, we have to have those conversations.
0: Yeah. And there are, there are some really interesting spaces. The one that you mentioned about culture and, and how do you maintain that like uh, remotely and stuff like that is it's such an interesting challenge for the thought leaders who've been talking about this stuff because it's challenging to them because it's not just about creating content. You know, this, you actually have to have something worthwhile saying, which means you better be out there researching Working with clients that are in the field, like you like, your your new round of intellectual capital has to come from somewhere. Like those well, new that's strategic a great breakthroughs, point because
1: there, there's a million work from home experts that popped up like weeds. And I'm like, <laughs> what were you doing six months ago? Like, I, I was talking to a guy this morning that's the founder of a company called Centric Consulting, of a thousand people, and their whole thing is they've never had offices. And he just happened to write a book that came out in June. Oh, I forgot what the title was, but something about the you know the office officeless enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, COVID made that more relevant, but right. I would be far more likely to listen to him and believe him and talk. To him. Yes. He's been doing it for 20 years and he wasn't doing it as a reaction to COVID. That was just part of the culture. And Hey, there's any, and he talks about the benefits of I can hire someone in Iowa, even though we have an office in Columbus and we can be more flexible. And if people want to you know, take the, you know, all the benefits and, and the ROI to him, it's mm-hmm. people stay long, all this sort of stuff versus someone that six months ago was a, uh, you know, car salesman and now they're a work from home guru. Like, so I think to your point is the integrity and the gravitas is why the hell should anybody listen to you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, and if you, if you've been speaking on something that has been relevant up until now and you've got 10 years experience, like the biggest temptation right now is just to sit back and wait for things to go back to normal rather than keep pushing to develop new intellectual capital, new intellectual property that can then be applied to what's going on. And I get it. Like I feel for those folks that are, they have a comfort zone and you've been making really good money in that space for a while.
1: Yeah, but they're done. Um, So, so maybe in case nobody told you, you know, this does not resume. This isn't like I put Netflix on pause, went up to get a snack and came back. It's like, I was watching Spider-Man and come back and it's, uh, you know, it's ch- Children of Men. Yeah. Yeah. No, right. Apocalyptic. Total- yeah. I mean, this is, this is everything right now is about reinvention, not resume. I mean, yeah. we will get back to something that looked closer to what it was than what it is, but, but it's, this is not, this isn't just a six month snow day. It's mm-hmm. you know, there are some major changes going on that will, uh, be forever part of the, the the vernacular, the business culture, the way we operate. I mean, do you, do you have any of your friends that you know that used to commute? That says, "Golly gee, I can't wait to get back and waste three hours of my life in my car every day. Can't wait for that."
0: You know, you you gotta you gotta really have some uh, some friction with the spouse. Let's put it that way want to want to hit those roads in California
1: again. <laughs> right, but but think about that. How many people and I would look, you look at the four or five every day and goes, "What is wrong with these people? Why would they subject themselves to this every day?" Uh, and then yeah. they get a period of time without it, and they're like, "Hmm, how quickly you think they're going back to that?" Oh, and by the way, they might be under the the notion that their lives are at risk when they go to a crowded office. Anyway, uh, I'm thinking I, not. <laughs> yeah, I know
0: that's that's a whole other story. But yeah, I can see like in my world, well, in our world of agencies, I think we're going to lead the way. I think most agencies sure. are done renting office space, period.
1: Yeah, unless- Well, I see it right now. I know Gary Vee's place just gave up a floor in Hudson Yards. and like, they really? listen, it's, it's not going to go to zero. And mm-hmm. I think um, what becomes interesting is, were we really aware of our surroundings and optimizing them? Meaning, if I'm going to go back to an office environment, it's probably not five days a week. Maybe it's two days a week. Maybe it's three days mm-hmm. a week, whatever it is. But when I'm there- Am I going to throw on my headphones and close my door and ignore everyone? No. That's the, you know, on Tuesdays, Matt and I happen to be in the office. I need some Matt time. We need to Mm -hmm. do some of that stuff, that creativity, that innovation. If I need to just write and do stuff, why do I need to get in a car and go somewhere and sit there to do what I could have done, you know,
0: sitting at at home? home? Better alone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of that. Like I remember working for my last agency and it was me, the CEO and the other VP in the office. There was nobody else in the office and that was a fun office because there was culture, (laughs) there was camaraderie, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, like I I think we're going to have a lot more of that where you have certain leadership, you know, like people that need to be in the same room together uh, for for real I think there's
1: entrepreneurs that work from home. We know this, but I think there's a lot of corporate folks where the dirty little secret is that you claimed you were working for eight or nine hours, but it was always Sheila and Accounting's birthday. And then it was the coffee break. And then you were worried about going for lunch. And it's like, Are you, are you really, you know, you can get a hell of a lot more done at home uninterrupted with a couple of caveats, assuming you have the right space and and the equipment and things that you need. But what people were calling an eight or nine hour workday and what the productivity was on the other side of that, I would, I would beg to differ uh, that, you know, that they're really nose to the grindstone throughout. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, My, my mom is the exception. She shows up and it's like, she sits down at her desk as if she's clocked in. It's, it's insane. Like she sits there at a desk at home.
1: And oh, make sure okay. she's
0: in, uh, like, the butt is in the chair for eight hours of the day. Like, she is paranoid about that. And, uh, yeah, that is not most people. And I don't think it should be because, you know, you talk about knowing the outcomes. Um, I think we're going to have to really challenge, like, every single worker, every single role needs to have an outcome. And before, the outcome was <clears throat> you roll into the office. End of outcome. Like, assuming – Well, you even know, if you're not doing you're a damn thing. Yes. At right?
1: like, the end of the day, how many people honestly said – What did I get accomplished today? What did I do that was productive? What did I create a value? Versus, you know, keeping a seat warm for eight hours doesn't pay the bills. But Mm -hmm. if that's the perceived value, because people are walking by, you know, whatever, I think this is the time of ultimate, you know, um, uh, results only work and transparency. And you know, the people that worry about are the people doing what they need to do. If you've got people on staff that you're worried that if unless you're over their shoulder, they're doing work. Either you're a horrible leader or you're hiring idiots or some combination <laughs> thereof, period.
0: <laughs> that is a great way to end that, uh, that segment. Um, peter, what's the best way to get more of you on your podcast?
1: Yeah. So, well, you can go to the website, which is thoughtleadershipleverage.com. You can email me directly at Peter at com, And then the podcast is leveraging thought leadership, which is on all the usual podcasty places.
0: So if you, uh, if you have people where you have to worry about whether they're actually getting stuff done, you're either a bad leader or you're hired idiots or some combination thereof. That is the, yeah. that is the quote of the episode. I love it. Um, final question for you. Um,
1: so, do we have merch? Do we got merch? <laughs> <you>? <laughs>
0: that's, we'll fit it on a t-shirt. We'll feed, yeah, it'll be like extra well, large. the but, back uh, will
1: be, are you an idiot or are you hiring idiots? Right? Like we can do front and back. <laughs> <laughs> Pick one. <you> know? <laughs> oh,
0: man. Um, so my question is like under normal... Circumstances, uh, a, a CMO or or you know VP of sales or something like that of one of these organizations that has sponsorship dollars for events and things like this that kind of gets wrapped up into their lead gen budget. Normally, they would they would have to spend that. Otherwise, they get a cut from next year's budget. So they they would have an incentive, like, hey, let's throw sure. yeah, th- yeah, throw ten grand at this this booth for next year because yeah, like we yeah. got we got to burn anyway.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Um. They're they're a little bit different. This like all bets are off thing. People are reevaluating. So that's not necessarily the case. So is there is that still the mentality? Do you think in larger companies are they still under the mentality that we've got to spend the money or are they? Do you think they're getting pressure now that look if it's not essential, let's cut back and then let's revisit yeah, next
1: so- year. Yeah. So. I think that old school model of if my budget was a million and it's coming towards the end of the year and I've got a hundred lefties now I'm racing to spend money. Think about that. Like that is ridiculous. Like why were you spending that money? But that's the psychology and that's the way people were rewarded. So the systems and processes were in place to uh, reinforce stupid behavior. right? Right. Now what happened is, the this is the first time where everybody's experiencing something this catastrophic at the same time so if you have katrina or 9-11 or any of these other things okay great we feel bad for new orleans for for a while and we do what we can for new orleans but at the end of the day my life wasn't radically altered even 9 i'm a new yorker i was here yeah. it was bad but you know friends in denver six months later it was i mean there was there was sympathy there's empathy yeah their days didn't change all that much other than they've got to bring small shampoo bottles onto their, so I think my point is everybody had to not spend that event budget. They didn't have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. So now the question is, okay, so we didn't spend it. What are the outcomes we got? And this will be an odd year because you can blame everything on COVID and whatever, whatever. But let's reevaluate when I'm adding things back. And I think this is the point, I'm adding things back to the norm, whether that's my commute or budget to go to events, I need to question. Mm. I need to continue to question. And I think the way we used to operate was the attic. Let's just throw things up there and then, you know, whatever, whatever gets accumulated gets accumulated and whatever. But now we say, wait a minute, we used to do six events a year. Let's look at each one of these. And what if maybe it's 2021 or 2022 and we're normalized? What if we only did two or three? Like, like you know, the old joke of, you know, half of all advertising is wasted. We just don't know which half. Mm-hmm. We might know better which half now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, you go back to square one and
0: then we've got decent lead tracking now that we didn't have five, 10 years ago. Yeah, we may actually know which events actually generate ROI.
1: To a CMO at a top three consulting firm several years ago. And uh, they went to all these events. They went to Davos, private planes, millions and millions. he said, listen, there's only 30 people that matter in my entire world. It'd be cheaper for me to ship a damn pony to their house than all (laughs) the stuff that I do. And it really got me thinking. Like, like, <laughs> wow. Now, not that they literally would ship a pony, oh, but no, no. but what they're saying is, there's 30 people. If I spent, you know, fifty, a hundred grand each, it doesn't matter. It would be cheaper than what I'm doing. Like, re- remember Accenture having, you know, these huge diorama or billboards at O'Hare Airport? Like, did anybody ever stop at O'Hare and say, "Oh, let me write that name down." ACC, I'm going to go to the most account.
0: insane thing,
1: right? Like, what is that spend going? So I think the ability to question spend and convince people to try experiments. Hey, I want to take five people and do ABCD with it and take, you know, in exchange for that, I'll give up the, the Scottsdale trip I used to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I think. Again, well, taking- and
0: just the you dropped like that, that nugget right there, like there's only 30 people in my world that really matter. Like it's, And I think, I think a lot of us could get to that point too where we really go, okay, look, I've got, I've got 25 to 30 real hardcore strategic referral partners and a pretty good chunk of my business comes from them sending me the right people. And what can I do to build relationships with them? And it used to be us having a cocktail at an event and if that's not going to be the sure. case, then what else can I do with, with the only goal? is just to build relationships with those referral partners.
1: Well, I think what's happened is, and, and not to pick on you, but you you came from the agency world, so screw it, I'll pick on you. Um, <laughs> agencies are really good at teaching people how to broadcast what they've got. And what right. I'm saying is most of broadcasting is wasted. Right. I mean, it's just wasted. So I'm talking about narrow casting. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about, okay, so if there's 30 people or 20 or 50 or whatever, even, you know, I've got tons of clients that write books. I'm like, listen, It's nothing, you know, the success of this book for you is not about selling 100,000 copies or 10,000 copies. There's 200 people that matter. Let's avoid the middleman to just get it directly to them and figure out 200 people. Do you know the 200 people, not, oh, marketing people, by name, that if you got this book in their hands and some some set of those people had an aha moment, your game would be changed. If you don't, start doing that. Because by the way, it's not that expensive and it works.
0: No, and if you have a high ticket offer, you should be able to come up with that list that's the only time when that doesn't work is if you have a low ticket offer and you need a nameless faceless mass audience
1: yeah in the matrix of low ticket low volume that's not where anyone wants to be uh no that is that is
0: (laughs) what is that that's the uh that's the ass end of uh of boston Consulting's matrix yeah
1: (laughs) yeah exactly some right some of the big ones probably have that as a uh consulting matrix yeah. oh man I love
0: it Peter this is awesome I, I really appreciate it I had a blast on these conversations and I know we'll do more of them in the future so I hope people check out the podcast uh, I mentioned that we've had you know I've been on it uh, you've been on mine many times before at this point uh, and uh, I look forward to having you on again
1: yeah that's great and I didn't have to fly here so this was fantastic exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me man Thanks for listening
0: to the Micro Famous Podcast. If you're ready to become famously influential to the right people, connect with us at getmicrofamous.com. It's the best way to take the next step to implementing the Micro Famous strategy in your business so you can attract an audience, build influence, and become the Micro Famous leader you're meant to be. And we'll see you on the next episode.